In this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. Live from a Montana wilderness fortress, Wednesday nights at 9 Eastern, this is the Matt Christensen Hour. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Matt Christensen. This is the Matt Christensen Hour on Tenet Media. Thanks for tuning in. I am joined as always by my producer down under, Tim. Good day, Tim. Good day. How are you going? Hope everyone had a Merry Christmas, of course. It was nice to enjoy some family time with uh, the newest member of our family, our newborn son. How was your Christmas, Tim? Yeah, our Christmas was pretty good. It was a little weird this year. We had some pretty violent storms around Christmas. So I saw you know, that. Electrical stuff. Of, yeah, you had to be careful. You weren't getting caught in like hail storms or anything like that. So it was a bit wild, but other than that, pretty good. Yeah. I yeah. was wondering if that was in your area. When I see like storm in Australia, I think, well, I, that must be affecting him, even though, of course, the landmass of Australia is like the same as the US roughly. But uh, electrical storm down Brisbane way, you say. All right. Yeah, yeah, we got a little bit of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, if there's one thing that doesn't take a holiday break besides the weather, it is border crossing, of course. In fact, it looks like Christmas is the best time to jump across the border. Later in the show, we'll take a look at the Christmas surge of migrants. Uh, Tens of thousands of crossings in just the last few days alone. Meanwhile, Pizza Hut in California is laying off over a thousand delivery drivers in response to the state's new minimum wage law. Those evil, greedy corporations are at it again. Big Pizza is putting a stop to all of the amazing progress that California progressives continue to provide. We'll take a look at the story of a trans activist uh, taking on a Delta Airlines employee, and it doesn't go as planned, so now really everyone's mad at Delta, either for shipping illegal immigrants all across the country or now for misgendering, or possibly both. We're all waiting for Delta's response To both incidents, I assume uh, the Delta CEO is taking an extended Christmas vacation until this all blows over. And of course, uh, at the end of the show, we'll read uh, an email question, if time allows, and uh, we'll read your super chats as well. But first, my guest tonight is Douglas Mackey, the now convicted memester who posted uh, graphics in 2016 encouraging Hillary voters to vote by text or tweet. He's now convicted in federal court and facing a seven-month prison sentence for what the Justice Department calls election interference or a conspiracy against rights, as in he plotted to deny people their constitutional right to vote. That's what he's now convicted of. Along with uh, Missouri v. Biden, the case about the White House working with social media companies to censor Americans, personally, I consider this case to be the most important First Amendment case. I would say 1A and 1B, both of those. Crucially important First Amendment cases working their way through the courts right now. And since the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals is now keeping Douglas Mackey out of prison to examine these First Amendment questions, it would seem the courts are not entirely convinced that his conviction is constitutional either. So we will get right into that interview with Douglas Mackey. It's just about 30 minutes long. So we'll see you on the other side in the back half of the show with another update in this story and some other news items of the week as well.
And welcome back. I am pleased to host my guest for the evening. He is the most dangerous memester on the internet, at least according to the Justice Department. Douglas Mackey, convicted of criminal memes, posted on Twitter in 2016. Now sentenced to prison, but escaping it as an appeals court considers his case. Douglas, thanks for making time for me. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Many in my audience are familiar with your case, and I've spoken about it a couple times over the course of the last year. So we'll get to those criminal memes in a moment. But I want to start with the status of your prison sentence, because at the start of the month, or I forget if it was back in November, but recently, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York granted your release pending this appeal. In other words, they're keeping you out of prison pending the resolution of that appeal, correct? So what's the what's the status of your prison sentence at the moment? Yeah, you got it right. So I was scheduled to report to federal prison on January 18th. And the district court denied our motion for bond pending appeal. You know, as you know, it's a seven-month sentence. So if they don't give me bond pending appeal, then I'm going to have to serve the whole sentence before they even consider the appeal. So we did go to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and appeal that bond decision with my appellate attorneys. And they held oral arguments December 4th and issued their decision, or they maybe they held oral arguments a few days earlier, but they issued their decision and they granted our motion for bond pending appeal. So I was very grateful. And, uh, and hopefully that's a step towards vindication. And it, what was encouraging also is that the bond panel was uh, bipartisan or at least appointed by different presidents, Obama, Biden and President Trump. So that was very encouraging. And this kind of appeal doesn't succeed very often in federal courts. So that's also very encouraging. Did you get a sense of what the substance is behind that decision? I know that you said that the um the court found that there were substantial and debatable issues of law that if resolved in your favor would result in the conviction being vacated. Now I interpret that to mean substantial questions on the first amendment, but maybe the court is thinking something else. Do you have a sense of what the court is, is thinking these substantial issues are? Right. So in our motion, we raised the issue of first amendment. Like you said, we also raised the issue of, due process, which is, uh, it's called notice, which is that if nobody could have predicted that the law would be interpreted in this way, then you can't, you're not on notice that you committed a mm-hmm. crime. And then the third issue, which is actually very important and also constitutional is the issue of venue. Uh, the issue of venue is very important. The fact that you have to be tried in the district where you committed the crime or where the crime occurred. So that is the third issue. The judges, um, they those are the issues. And like I said, substantial. The legal standard is the issues have to be substantial or a close call or novel or debatable. And I think that it's definitely novel. It's definitely debatable. These are substantial issues. And I think it's a very close call. So I'm encouraged by that. Let's see what the, the appellate court has to say in the next up, upcoming few months. Curious about that jurisdiction question, too, because, well, correct me if I'm wrong. You live in Florida currently. Yes. When you posted the memes in question, you were in Florida at the time. This is 2016. So actually, I was in Manhattan. Oh, so that's how they got you in New York. It was at the time you were living in New York. Okay. 
Right. So it's in Manhattan. The problem is Manhattan is the Southern District of New York. Oh. They prosecuted this case in the Eastern District of New York. So how did they get that? Right, exactly. So they tried to argue a couple different things. The only thing that they actually proved at trial is that the tweets went over wires or through the air okay. between exactly. Uh, I mean, they can get any the jurisdiction Eastern. they want under that standard. That's the exact. That's exactly the problem. Yeah. It could, if you if they think that they can bring this case wherever they can prove that tweets flowed over wires, that's all ninety four different jurisdictions in this country. Yeah, that's so a huge I mean, problem. Really, anything connected to the internet. If you're accused of a crime that has any internet implications, that is a recipe to bring that case to whatever friendly uh, judge or put it under you know under the oversight of whatever prosecutor they'd like to to handle that case. I, man. That's news to me. I had no idea that's how they got you in, in that particular jurisdiction, which is its own dangerous component of this case. My God. But um, right. I, I want to talk to you about the uh, the memes for which you were convicted. Uh, in 2016, you post some of these gag graphics on Twitter, which tell people to vote for Hillary by tweet or by text, which, of course, you can't do. And the Justice Department, the core of their case is they're saying, you were involved in a conspiracy to deny people's constitutional right to vote. Um, and it's, it would under their framework, it's a criminal act under this reconstruction era law that, that was meant to stop uh, people from physically block, uh, blocking black people from voting after, after the civil war and in the reconstruction era. Problem is, unless you're aware of another case, the DOJ, uh, the the law that they're using, the theory they're using here has never been used to prosecute speech in this way. And, and if your conviction stands, this would be some sort of new or novel First Amendment exception. You just can't lie about the election or voting methods or something like that. Um, I want to make sure I understand your intent in posting these memes. Like, did you ever intend to trick someone out of his or her vote? Right. I actually testified at the trial. The answer to that question is no, definitely not. And like you said, this this law has two standards that have to be met, specific intent and an agreement. And the interesting thing is there's no evidence of either specific intent or an agreement, or I should be more specific. There's no direct evidence. They didn't present any direct evidence at trial. All their evidence was inferential or circumstantial. And they just try to say, this guy's bad. You know, he has bad thoughts in his head. He tried to do a bad thing, and therefore you have to convict him. So, no, the, the intent was obviously not to fool anyone out of voting. This is a gag. Um, this is, we call it at trial, uh, sorry to be vulgar, a shit post. And Be this as vulgar is a... as you want. This is not a classy <laughs> show. Don't worry. <laughs> This yeah. is something that people put, I mean, thousands of people posting this kind of stuff to get people riled up, to get the other side pissed off. Yeah, I know the classic example is that comedian Christina Wong, who did the exact same thing at the exact same time. Hey, Trump supporters, join me on Super Wednesday to vote for Trump. It's very important that you get the date right. Of course, the date isn't right, but that's the thing. It's like, yeah, it's a shit post. I'm not trying to discredit your memes, but this is not even like a, a joke or a gag that you invented. This is something that has been ongoing for as long as the Internet has been alive, really. Right. And you, that's what's dangerous about this prosecution, too, is they didn't allege that I created the memes. I didn't create the memes. 
all I did was copy and I see them. So I saw them on 4chan. Thought it was funny. Copy and paste onto Twitter. That's it. And they got you the, the core of, of this case, or they're trying to get you on this conspiracy charge. And the interesting thing about a conspiracy that has a definition, a conspiracy, as you mentioned, is an agreement among people. And so who are the other people in this conspiracy and have those people been charged? Or are you the only one charged in this particular conspiracy? Good question. So there's there's two groups of people here. Uh, the DOJ, they went and subpoenaed uh, dozens or even more people's direct messages. They found the people that were creating the meme. And so they were unindicted co-conspirators, even though these people, you know, I had nothing to do with creating the meme, never asked anyone to create it for me, had no idea that these people were even creating the meme or what their intent was, what their thought was in their head and created the meme. For all I know, they really thought that this meme was actually going to trick people. But I think it's obvious, you know, you have to be a little bit gullible to believe that this meme is actually going to work. There was one other uh, co-conspirator that was actually indicted. And he... Uh, was indicted because he agreed to cooperate with the government, whatever they had on him, they were holding over his head. He agreed to cooperate with the government. He They brought him in and he testified at trial anonymously, which is usually something that's reserved only for MS-13 or ISIS. Uh, I don't even think the mob, the you know, the mafia back in the day, I don't even think those people were granted anon- uh, anonymity to testify against the mafia. So they testified, uh, he was able to testify anonymously because they said, oh, well, he could get, um, you know, people could be mean to him over the internet if he has to testify under his real name. And he he went up there and he, <laughs> they coached him very well. He said, well, maybe they didn't coach him that well because initially in his interviews, he had said there was no grand agreement. There was no grand conspiracy to steal votes or anything like that. They got him up there and got him to say that there was a silent that we had a silent agreement to steal people's votes. Oh Some guy never even met, never even had any direct conversation with him, never even had a conversation in a group chat with him before the election of 2016. And they said this guy sitting on his computer a thousand, two thousand miles away, wherever he was, we had a silent agreement. So that, that was particularly egregious. It, yeah, it's insane. Is a retweet a silent agreement among co-conspirators? This is this is uh, some truly dangerous territory that your case is is entering. It's a uh, it's it's shocking. And uh, another thing that I wanted to clarify, I've talked about this case, and this is anecdotal. I have no idea if this is true or not, and I haven't been able to verify it in my own research. But I've had a handful of people say to me in my audience interaction, no, uh, Matt, the one thing you're missing, Mackie made a website to try to trick people out of their vote, that you were directing people to some sort of fr- website that was that had fraudulent information on it or something like that. Is there any truth to that accusation? I've, I've found no information on that. Right. There's absolutely no truth to that. I mean, that was nowhere in any of the court documents, any of the court papers, any anything of the trial. Now, uh, you know, the thing is, I don't even know how to create a website personally. And absolutely not. I don't know where they're getting that information. Um, someone might have done that. And then people say, oh, well, the all these, you know, someone does something over here. You have no idea what's going on. And then they say, well, 
this must have been part of it. But no, absolutely not. And even if that happened, uh, who knows if someone in this in this grand conspiracy did that? Obviously, you're saying that was not any kind of determining factor in your prosecution or conviction. And it is not as though the prosecutors no, pointed to that and said that's what he did. Right. If okay. they had evidence that the co-conspirators did that, they would have brought that into the trial. Absolutely would have brought that into the trial. So none of the co-conspirators were accused of creating any sort of website. I don't know if anyone did create a website. Uh, it never came up in you know, the trial or any of the evidence, the discovery, nothing. So it's 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 a mystery to me. I, I have no idea. Did you have any criminal record prior to this incident? Have the feds ever investigated you for anything else or law enforcement at any level for that matter? No, no. Oh, it's okay. So you, you just went all the way. It was just federal raid one morning and yeah, there's no... Yeah, all the way <laughs> to no federal felony. Wow, man. <laughs> uh, I suppose we're all headed that way eventually. But uh, okay. Um, when you were at trial, you have a you have a solid understanding of, of the prosecutor's case against you, of course. As as an outside observer, I'm trying to figure out what sort of First Amendment exception box the prosecution thinks this fits into. Uh, you didn't incite anyone to commit a crime or to commit violence. Uh, this is not a case of defamation. You know, sometimes we think of, of criminal or, or legally punishable lies. We think of things like defamation or we think of fraud in a commercial sense, like false advertising. This is something of its own new box where I guess lying about the election, lying about the government. Problem is the Supreme Court has already ruled you have a constitutional right to lie about the government if that's what you were doing, which I mean, you're telling me you weren't lying. You were making a joke. So there's that complicating factor, too. But what I suppose, do you have a sense of the prosecution's theory of the First Amendment? What sort of exception box do they think this fits into if you understand that at all yeah that's a great question i mean they never quite spelled it out exactly i don't believe that i recall but the general exception that it would be under i think would be crime uh speech that is integral to the committing of a crime or something of yeah. that nature and the district court ruled against us on our motion to dismiss they said this case is not about speech this case is about conspiracy and injury uh and then that's a whole other appellate issue uh, injury to the whom injury. would be the question though i mean I, I heard you in your your tucker interview talking about how they they really tried desperately to find someone who was injured as in someone who said i intended to vote but that mackie meme duped me out of it there's no such person so when they say injury they're talking about a hypothetical that would have strengthened their case a lot if they could find someone we had all the discovery, the FBI 302s. They went around the district knocking on doors, trying to find somebody that said, oh, yeah, I forgot to vote or I didn't vote in the election. Uh, the people that they interviewed, a lot of them didn't even remember texting the vote or they said, yeah, obviously, I don't think this is possible. Obviously, I don't think you can text a vote. And they couldn't find anybody. So the meaning of the word injury um, and the court said there's all these other things like hamper or make difficult. Well, if the federal government is going to say we're going to prosecute speech that, quote unquote, makes difficult, for instance, uh, someone exercising their rights, makes it difficult to exercise your rights. Are you going to prosecute protesters at a speech or protesters outside a, 
an abortion clinic or anything like this under this statute, it's it really opens up a huge can of worms. That's a big part of our appeal. Yeah, that's my question about this conspiracy to violate rights stuff. It's like even if I take the the strength, the, their case at its strongest, that you, if not in effect, you intended to dupe someone out of their 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 right to vote. What if I just convince someone not to vote? What if I just tell them like you know your vote doesn't matter, you shouldn't do it? Have I have I conspired against the exercise of your rights because you would have exercised them in a way different had I not spoken to you? Or is that just sort of the the speech interaction that we as Americans enjoy, as is our constitutionally protected right? It, it, there are all sorts of questions about the reach of the of the standards that they're setting here that, that should frighten every American who cherishes the right to speak freely, not just about anything that's of interest, but this is core political speech stuff. Like you're talking about Candidates for presidential office. You're talking about, um, you know, electoral matters, the core political stuff that uh, that we should uh, have protected. And and I don't understand the boundaries that they're trying to draw here. Right. Um, exactly. Even if the the Congress had passed a law that said it is, and they tried to actually do this. They tried to pass a law saying it's illegal to lie about the time, manner, or place of an election within 30 days of that election which is a law that they've never even been able to pass, maybe that kind of a law would pass constitutional muster, mm -hmm. but even that's not clear. So the court has ruled in the past that the the courts, they can't artificially impose limiting or restraining factors on these statutes when there's none written in, that, that Congress never passed anything limiting this sort of a uh, yeah. case. To yeah, and it's like- only, it, yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But if that was Congress's intent with this Reconstruction era law that they're talking about, Congress could have been specific about that sort of thing. They were not. Instead, we're just kind of inferring that intent right. from some century old law that that clearly is written with different terms. It talks about um, you're not supposed to be oppressing, injuring, intimidating people away from their vote. Mm -hmm. Not just like, you know, posting. Or threatening. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Like the, the, the physical... Exactly. Uh, obstruction type stuff, not just like talking in a way that maybe changes their behavior if they encounter it. Right. But. And the government back in those days is 1871. They passed a number of laws at the same time that said, you know, you can't defraud or deceive the U.S. government. They didn't use any of those verbs in this statute. And hmm. they clearly could have. Interesting. I didn't know that piece of the history either. Uh, another um, important factor about your prosecution, I mean, I, you can gather this just by looking at the fact that, th that we're talking about the election prior. We're talking about 2016. The FBI comes and get uh, comes to get you in, in early 2021. But it's what, within a week of Biden taking office. I just want to be clear during the entire Trump presidency, nobody at the Justice Department, the FBI, any federal law enforcement ever contacted you about your supposedly illegal memes for four plus years. So actually, the FBI came and knocked on my door in 2018. Well, they did. Right. And they asked me if I knew some guy, right? Nothing about this. And then it was actually printed in, I think, the New York Times that the Justice Department was arguing over whether to actually allow this prosecution under Trump. And they decided that it was too dangerous to the First Amendment, mm -hmm. too difficult to prove specific intent. And then as soon as Bill Barr resigned, they brought the they moved forward to the prosecution. They got the they got the arrest warrant. 
January 22nd, two days after Biden was inaugurated. And then seven days after Biden was inaugurated, that uh, that was when the, the knock on the door came. I suppose that makes sense, but that's new information to me. I guess what makes sense is that there were forces inside the Justice Department thinking about this legal theory or thinking about this and had it ready to go the second that they probably had you know, clearance from the attorney general himself and, of course, the president of the United States to have cover to do the sort of thing that probably would have been much more controversial under the prior president. I guess it does make sense that they didn't ha- they didn't invent that in two days. But man, to think that all of that was going on probably, I don't know, un- undercover or like without the oversight of the attorney general at the time or at least without his direct involvement. I just wonder um, I just wonder if people were directed to do that or if they did that on their own time or how that came to be. That's very interesting. Yeah, they just had this prosecution on the shelf. And once they were able to get their way, they brought it. Now, what's interesting is they did not even bring this prosecution under the Civil Rights Division. The people in the Trump administration in the Civil Rights Division had never heard of this case. They brought this case through PIN Public Integrity. So you think a case like this, a civil rights case, not to mention a case where my civil rights are at stake, that they would run this through Civil Rights Division. But they kept it away from Civil Rights Division, which is curious in and of itself. Yeah, that's odd. That's another detail I wasn't aware of either. But of course, we have a core civil right at issue. The first one protected by the Bill of Rights itself. Um, yeah. Uh, another notable thing about your case is that this conspiracy to violate rights and this kind of uh, novel prosecution, this novel theory about it, is actually part of the January 6th Jack Smith case against Donald Trump himself. And there's speculation that maybe you're kind of a guinea pig, that if they're successful in prosecuting you as conspiring to violate people's rights in the 2016 election with memes, they could successfully prosecute Donald Trump for conspiring to violate people's rights in the form of, I suppose, I forget exactly what's in that indictment, but something to the effect of um, of rejecting the votes that you know were certified through the states and sent to Congress. Do you you think yes. uh, this is kind of a guinea pig case or do you think it's just coincidence? So it is a guinea pig case because this has always been sort of a liberal prosecutor's pipe dream. They've been talking about this for a long time, using this statute, conspiracy against rights, basically willy nilly. So what they've also done that people are not really aware of is abortion protesters prosecuted under the FACE Act. That's a big deal. What people don't know is those protesters were hit with two charges. The other charge was conspiracy against rights. Mm. So, which is kind of strange because the Supreme Court just ruled that there is no right to abortion. So it becomes unclear how uh, blocking you know, a sidewalk or whatever in front of an abortion clinic becomes a federal conspiracy against rights with a 10-year maximum felony sentence. Uh, 10-year statutory maximum felony. So I think those people also have a great case to be made on appeal. And then, like you just said, like you said, President Trump, this is this. I mean, the fact that they're bringing all these charges willy nilly, I mean, that just shows that the courts need to rein this in. Yeah. And of course, uh, we'll probably see some Supreme Court uh, involvement in in some of those Trump prosecutions, I would think. We might see some Supreme Court involvement in your case, too, depending on 
Well, I suppose even if the appeal goes your way, I, I don't doubt that the, the Justice Department will still try to go after you uh, to the to the fullest length that they can. And I don't know, I, I got to imagine that if if your case got to the Supreme Court, that they'd probably be friendly to you. But who knows? I mean, I, I don't I, I don't know that I'd be extremely confident in that prediction. But uh, if if necessary, would you? Would you be taking your case to the Supreme Court, let's say, if the appeals decision, appeals court decision goes the wrong way? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. We're very uh, optimistic about the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. But like you said, if it happens not to go our way, we'll, we're going to go to the Supreme Court immediately. Um, the Supreme Court has ruled for a long time that the uh, the Justice Department cannot interpret these kind of statutes so broadly as to encompass sort of an open-ended uh, sort of swath of criminal conduct or potentially, uh, or just regular conduct and try to criminalize it. So we would absolutely go to the Supreme Court. This case is a lot bigger than me. This case is about our rights. This case is about the chilling effect on 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 speech. I mean, people now think, well, what am I going to do? If I post a meme, am I conspiring against somebody? Not only that, in 2020, you know, we just had this these Twitter files come out earlier this year. And Matt Taibbi actually reported on Elvis Chan of the San Francisco FBI office, FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan. They were in contact with Twitter notifying them that they were going to serve process on accounts that had posted election jokes. And some of these jokes were so implausibly, were so obviously jokes. I mean, with my case, obviously my, mine was a joke, but the other side really doesn't think so. But some of these were like, oh, you know, Republicans vote on Tuesday, Democrats vote on Wednesday, or even someone saying, uh, you know, I'm I'm ripping up everybody's, uh, you know, ballot who didn't wear a mask, and, to the, and they're making an obvious joke. You know, I'm working in the- in the, I don't know if that the, one is a joke. Office. I could totally see them doing that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And here yeah. they are. They're notifying uh, Twitter that they're going to serve process on hundreds of these jokes. So I guess if you make a joke up at the election in this country, you don't have the right to privacy anymore because they're going to subpoena all your direct messages. They're going to figure out who's behind the account. With me, it's unbelievable what they did. They subpoenaed every single financial document, every single paycheck I ever received. Uh, my entire rent history. They went around interviewing old roommates of mine. Oh my god! So I guess that if you make a joke about the election on the internet, you can forget about your right to privacy, <sighs> which is exactly why this is chilling. This is overbroad. The application of this law, and it needs to be tossed out. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up here, I'm, I'm I'd like to hear you just talk about some of those more personal consequences, because of course, even if you are vindicated on appeal, you never spend a day in federal prison. These people have taken. Well, I, probably years of your life at this point, or, you know, you've been tied up in this case in particular, this entire year. Uh, have there been any kind of personal consequences as far as like employment or just relationships with family, friends, other things that aren't prison, but are direct consequences of the, the justice department targeting you in this way? Right. So this case has, you know, had a, uh, a massive, uh, massive consequences for me personally, but also for my family. Uh, one thing that I'm extremely fortunate is that the American people have actually come to my aid. They've act, they're actually funding this case. I don't have the means to fund this case. So 
there's a nonprofit tax deductible uh, fundraiser called the Meme Defense Fund, memedefensefund.com. Not only that, there's a give, send, go, give, send, go.com slash Douglas Mackey case. So the American people have come to my aid, but this has been extremely difficult on my own family, our finances, our ability to travel, uh, personal relationships with friends, extremely difficult. What I would say, though, is that this kind of thing has made me more resilient. It has made me stronger. I've adjusted to sort of the stress and the strain of the prosecution. That being said, there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's still a lot of stress. Uh, you know, if we don't win the appeal, we got to apply for another uh, bond, essentially. Yeah. So if it goes to Supreme Court, we got to go try to get another bond. So it's extremely difficult on my family. Just have my first son. Oh, well, congratulations. I didn't know. Thank that. you very much. Welcome to fatherhood. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Very proud, but extremely difficult. And, you know, that's that's the that's the process here. Yeah. It's well, kind of a case. You read my mind because I wanted to make sure that I promoted the website before we finish up. That's memedefensefund.com if people want to get involved in helping your defense. But is there any other place that you'd like to send people if they'd like to learn more about your case or you know, follow you wherever? Any other uh, items you'd like to shout out? Yeah, so all the links can be found at twitter.com slash Doug Mackey case. That includes people can even send checks either to me personally or to the tax deductible nonprofit. You can send crypto. We got crypto wallets. Um, and there's also a link to my sub stack where I actually provide people with updates on the case. So when this case was, when we won the, the bond appeal, I published a newsletter notifying people what just happened. So go to the twitter.com slash Doug Mackey case. And it's also Douglas Mackey with two S's dot substack.com. All right. Well, that's my guest, Douglas Mackey. Find more about his case over at memedefensefund.com, linked in the description, of course. Douglas, thanks for making time for me. I'm glad you get to enjoy this Christmas out of federal prison with your family. And uh, please do keep me updated on the case. You're always welcome to this platform if you have more things to say about it. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you so much. God bless. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks again to my guest, Douglas Mackey. Find all his links in the description or head on over to memedefensefund.com if you'd like to learn more or support his appeal. His case uh, is a very important one, and I will certainly be following his appeal closely in 2024. Yes, Tim. I think your mic's still muted. I'm really good at my job. There we go. Um, yeah. One of the things, yeah, yeah. One of the things that's really interesting is because uh, I've seen articles, I was just looking at one from New York Times saying uh, 4,900 unique numbers texted to vote for Hillary. So I find it interesting that they've not brought up anyone to testify that they missed out on their vote because they texted 
if they're claiming to have so many people that have actually done it. Uh, yeah, probably, I don't know. you know, 4,900, whatever the number is, they got curious about what would happen if they did. Likewise, I saw Joe Biden release some kind of text line within the last couple of days. You're supposed to text your concerns to the president, something to that effect. I wonder how that's going. I wonder what sort of texts they're receiving at the White House text line. Probably a similar sort of effect oh. where people are just curious yeah, rather yeah. than something meaningful happening. But uh well, the other theory, the other theory I have, which I have to be careful saying, but maybe people that thought, "Oh, I can vote in person and text the vote." Uh yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> if they can find ways to double up, I'm sure there's some of that going on too. Maybe, although nobody, you know, nobody did. Nobody, nobody said they were duped. But uh, one thing I regrettably was not able to discuss with Mr. Mackey was the pre-Christmas hit piece that CNN put out on him. Congratulations to Douglas on that. They published it right after I talked to him, unfortunately. Otherwise, I would have brought it up. Uh, but last week, CNN published this story. Trump defends former influencer convicted of election interference who has racist and anti-Semitic past. This uh, because Trump posted a campaign video blasting Joe Biden and his henchmen for trampling on Mackey's First Amendment rights. Apparently, Don Jr. also had Doug Mackey on his show uh, December 7th. And uh, Don Jr. said that that uh, Mackey's Twitter account was one of his favorite Twitter accounts of all time. So naturally, CNN has to come out with a hit piece about how racist and anti-Semitic Douglas Mackey is. And I thought, wow, if it's that important, then these must be juicy. What kind of tweets are we talking about? Uh, so I scroll through the story because I want to see what they got. And, uh, well, you got to scroll down a little bit through the article here. This paragraph starts to get at it. Mackey's Twitter account at the time featured a slew of hateful content and was ranked 107th, ranked as the 107th or ranked as 107 in a list of election influencers in the run up to the 2016 election. So I guess this study found that he was the 107th most influential account on Twitter in 2016. This is an MIT media lab study. So I thought, okay, well, what are they saying? You go look at the story. Well, it doesn't actually give you any information about his tweets. It's just, there he is right between Elizabeth Warren and right above the official, uh, Democrat party Twitter account, which is a big accomplishment until the prior Twitter regime, uh, banned him. And his account was no more. Go back to the CNN story, because that doesn't have anything juicy or interesting. You scroll down a few more paragraphs. On Twitter, Mackey had regularly shared racist caricatures of people of color, amplified demeaning stereotypes, and belittled entire groups with racial slurs. He used the N-word in multiple posts, and he described black people as feral. Anti-Semitism was another popular theme for him, and he routinely shared memes reminiscent of Nazi propaganda. So it wasn't actual Nazi propaganda, it was reminiscent of. All right, but I want to I see, like, what are these posts? I don't want CNN's description of them, I want the posts. So you got to scroll down a little bit more. Finally, they say in late 2015, he had a tweet that uh, said that, said Jewish people call Trump Hitler because they fear that justice will be done. Again, that was late 2015. As far as I can tell in this story, the only specific tweet that they cite. And if you want to see more of these specific hateful tweets, well, sorry, this trio of CNN reporters is just too good of a person or too good of uh, people to show you. CNN, uh, from the story, quote, CNN reviewed Mackey's tweets on the Internet Archive Wayback Machine and Archive Today but is sharing only a small subset of them due to their nature. Well, 
Congratulations to these CNN reporters. Thanks for watching out for me so I don't risk encountering some mean words on the internet. We all uh, admire your character, of course. But that's kind of the point here. Even if you dislike what Mackie said, you look at that late 2015 quote there and you think, well, that's terrible. That's a that's a horrible opinion to hold or a terrible thing to say. First Amendment protected speech and viewpoint. We don't put people in prison for this sort of stuff. The entire substance of what we just discussed still stands. We at least formerly we didn't put people in prison for this sort of stuff. Even if you hate that opinion, you hate that tweet, you hate what was said there. When this country was still America, you had a protected right to say such things. And by the way, we're digging back eight years at this point. You are allowed to change your mind. You are allowed to make mistakes. In a statement to CNN, Mackey and his legal team, they're saying, well, we don't even stand by that anymore. An attorney for Mackey said the tweets don't reflect his client's current views and that Mackey now regrets the tone and substance of his posts. However, he does not regret using uh, his anonymous account to provide conservative political ideas or then-candidate. Uh, Donald Trump. And so, yeah, uh, uh, scrape everyone's communications going back eight years. All of their uh, anonymous accounts that they may or may not have uh, operated. You'll find uh, you'll find some stuff. I guarantee you that. But just wanted to update everybody on that hit piece. I want to say congratulations to Mr. Mackey on that achievement. I hope to follow you in your footsteps one day. Uh, Onto the uh, the border surge because uh, there is no Christmas break at the border. In fact, the numbers are as bad as ever. We're breaking records on a daily basis uh, for the last few weeks. Border Patrol apprehended more than 29,000 migrants during the extended Christmas weekend. That's between Friday and Monday. That number, that 29,000 number, is of course only those processed. Does not include those camping in outdoor detention areas along the border's edge or those who simply were not detected. The hottest spot currently is the Tucson sector. In five days over Christmas, Border Patrol apprehended over 12,000 migrants in that sector alone. The Del Rio sector is just behind, also at about 12,000 migrants in the same uh, five-day time frame. The massive surge forced officials in the Del Rio sector to shut down operations in multiple Border Patrol stations, the move will leave more than 10,000 square miles with, uh, within just that sector without any Border Patrol presence at all. And you have to assume much of that is by design. Now, I'm not just talking about the U.S. government there. I'm talking about the cartels. The movement of migrants is largely controlled by cartels. When cartels want to take attention off of one area, they move masses of people to another to bring attention there. It's also likely that uh, or it's also the reason why likely that we're seeing such significant numbers at Christmas time. The cartels know that fewer agents are on duty over the holiday season. We also have a fresh migrant caravan incoming. Uh, it's uh, I've seen reports here saying between 8,000 or so and 15,000 in this uh, migrant caravan now moving through Mexico. They left uh, a city in southern Mexico a couple days ago. It's called the Christmas Caravan. And uh, it's led by activist Luis Garcia Villagran. So uh, what is uh, Joe Biden, what is the White House doing about it? Well, he is doing what he usually does. He is shaking his fist and yelling at the sky. Or in this case, he's yelling at the Mexican authorities. 
Today, senior U.S. officials met with Mexican government leaders to seek help in stopping this migrant movement through Mexico. They want them to move, uh, them being Mexican government officials, they want them to move migrants south, control the railways that are used to move migrants north to the U.S. border, and to, prov uh, to provide incentives not to try to make the journey to the U.S., now, perhaps you're uh, you're wondering, well, what's the problem? What's wrong with getting a little bit of help from Mexico? There's nothing inherently wrong with that, of course. It's only a problem if you're trying to work with Mexico more seriously than you are the actual Congress of the United States. If we took border security seriously, Congress could pass a law as their first order of 2024 business to change the way that we handle migrant encounters at the border. We could fund a massive presence of law enforcement at the border. Maybe we take a momentary break from sending blank checks to Ukraine. And Joe Biden could support all of those things. He could lobby for all of those things. He could kick Democrats into gear. It would only take a few moderate Democrats in the Senate to sign on to the extent that moderate Democrats still exist in the Senate. But he doesn't. He sits back. He does nothing. He tells the Mexican government to do something about it instead. Fantastic leadership. As always, but um, but I am probably the idiot here for thinking this is anything other than the intent. When I mentioned the U.S. government's intent a moment ago, the border is such a disaster, and it has been for such a, a long period of time. I have to believe that those in power want it that way. Uh, so it's probably perfect just the way that it is. Tim, you had a thought. Yeah, so two things quickly. Uh, firstly... He was the one that got rid of the stay in Mexico policy. So if he's now going to the Mexico cap in hand saying, hey, can you help us out? They're already doing something. So what the fuck are you doing now trying to ask for help? Also, what's the point of telling them, can you disincentivize people to come to the U.S. border if you're not disincentivizing them? Uh, yeah. Like, good, am good, I missing good something? Point. We could start with our own <laughs> disincentives. Uh, point taken. So, uh yeah, uh, we're, we're going to see continued border crossings at record pace into 2024 here. And we'll see how bad the polling turns for Joe Biden, if it in fact can turn any worse. Another story I wanted to uh, mention. If you want to get a pizza delivered from Pizza Hut in California, you better order quickly because those days appear to be coming to an end. At least if you want direct delivery from Pizza Hut. Don't worry, it appears Uber Eats and uh, DoorDash and the rest of them will still be delivering your cheap cardboard pizza. And I say that as a fellow lover of cheap cardboard pizza, so it's not a shot. But the virtuous progressives of California passed a law this year to raise the minimum wage for fast food workers to 20 bucks an hour. Because, of course, nothing fights inflation like massive wages for basic food preparation. And it's right here in uh, the story that, that it's uh, specifically, they did this to fight inflation. Let me believe. Yeah. Okay. 20, 20. Uh, the increase to 20 bucks an hour comes after the passage of assembly bill 1228, which aims to help fast food workers cope with the rising cost of living and inflation in the golden States. We're going to fight high costs with this nonsense. That's the idea. But the law takes effect in April in response to this law and in compliance with yet another California labor law that requires employers to provide 60 days notice for mass layoffs two large pizza uh, pizza hut operators in California have announced they are laying off roughly 1200 delivery drivers 
Here is reporting from uh, the local Fox station on the story. Two Pizza Hut operators in California are eliminating their in-house delivery at hundreds of stores. Now, this will result in more than 1,200 drivers being laid off. The layoffs will come in February at 72 California stores. Orange, Los Angeles, Riverside, Ventura, and San Bernardino counties all affected. Chains like Chipotle and McDonald's say they plan to pass the cost of higher wages in California to customers by raising menu prices. I wonder if this is also in part because it's easier to offset the delivery to Uber Eats. As the reporting notes, there are other fast food chains. McDonald's and Chipotle have opted to manage the increased operating costs by raising menu prices instead. So you get to take your pick. Do you want reduced services or do you want more expensive food? And that's actually not even a mutually exclusive scenario. You might get reduced services and increased costs, more expensive food. That is the California way. And I, the, the response to this from people who think they're somehow going to lift up workers with this move, well, no, we want business owners to eat all the costs and give us stuff at a price that we say. That's the apparent logic. Well, when the state dictates the terms of the exchange instead of the market, what will happen is people will just leave the market or in this case, be forced out of the market because you can't be paying people more then the labor itself, the value that is provided, actually is. And um, the reporter, uh, as the reporter said at the end of the piece there, this move is likely because Pizza Hut knows they can just pass the cost off onto third-party delivery companies. As far as I'm aware, that is because in California, delivery drivers for DoorDash and Uber Eats and these delivery companies who are not directly employed by, say, Pizza Hut or other pizza chains, they're considered independent contractors. They're not actually fast food employees. So my understanding is they're exempt from this law on that basis. So what's going to happen here? If 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 those uh, independent contractors of Uber Eats and DoorDash can handle this delivery task at a lower cost, well, instead of keeping their own employees in-house, California has made it too expensive for companies like Pizza Hut. So companies will just use Uber Eats or DoorDash for delivery services. And it makes sense. If you if you run a business, you know you're going to have to keep your food prices as low as you can if you're in the food business, obviously. Given the competition where there's, you know, it's a very saturated market and given inflation, when American consumers have less less money to spend, one uh, one place for easy cuts is just not going out to eat as often. So if a company like Pizza Hut has a way to keep prices the same to the extent they can in this inflationary environment and still maintain a delivery service option through some third-party contracting service, well, that's what you have to do. You find a delivery option that, that makes sense. Thus, we see the mass layoffs of the formerly employed delivery drivers for Pizza Hut. And that is because, as the great Thomas Sowell wrote in Basic Economics, a very important quote that everyone should understand, The real minimum wage is always zero, regardless of the laws, and that is the wage that many workers receive in the wake of the creation or escalation of a government-mandated minimum wage because they lose their jobs or fail to find jobs when they enter the labor force. Making it illegal to pay less than a given amount does not make a worker's productivity worth that amount, and if it is not, that worker is unlikely to be employed, which is correct. When the state decides the value of the goods or the services in question here, instead of the market, 
and the voluntary exchange between business and worker, you get less opportunity, not more. Employers will not pay more than the work is worth, and the workers at the lowest end will pay the harshest price, which is no job at all, in fact. Tim, I know you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, so I've got some personal experience from this. Uh, would have been about 20 years ago when I was first looking for a new job. Uh, we have pretty high uh, minimum wages here in Australia. And so the companies are going to look for someone that can make them back at least the wages that they're going to pay them, right? When I was looking, I got told all the time, sorry, we're looking for someone with experience. Finally, I got a job as a trainee. It, I don't even think it was double digits. It was shitty pay. But it got me into the workforce. And from there, I gained experience. I was able to work on. But, yeah, basically, the lower cost is a good idea. And it's something I've personally experienced where I just could not get a job. And it wasn't until I could find one that actually costs a little bit less wage-wise that I was able to get on the, basically on the work, on the, uh, what is it, the employment ladder, whatever they call it. Yeah. If you're providing sort of intern level work where it's kind of on the job training almost, you don't have a lot of skills when you enter that job, but you're gaining skills on the job. The state comes in to the employer. That might actually be a cost. In addition to what they're paying you, there's time invested in teaching you the skills that are necessary for you to do the job. And so there are a lot of financial considerations for the employer in that scenario. And if the state comes in and says, no, no, we know that you guys mutually have agreed that this labor is worth this compensation. Sorry, that's an illegal rate as far as we're concerned. Well, yeah. Then the answer from the business is, okay, well, I can't pay him more than the work is worth. So I guess there's just no opportunity at all. And uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to hear that you had experience with being in that exact situation. Who does it punish? It doesn't punish someone with a lot of experience who's very highly skilled and has established a lot of value for their employer. It punishes someone who's looking to get a start. It punishes someone who needs experience to get to a higher level of work. As but, always, the good intentions go sour. And the really funny thing is Gavin Newsom, when this was introduced, said, uh, yeah, a lot of these workers are, they're women, they're people of color. We really need to help them. It's like, congratulations, numbnuts. You're probably actually going to deny them employment because yeah. they're going to be not worth the amount that they're going to have to be paid. Yeah, exactly. The real minimum wage is always zero. It's uh, proven once again. Okay, I want to talk one more story before we wrap up tonight. I did want to get to an email question, but I think we're probably going to have to save that for next week. But uh, don't worry, I will uh, I will do that to the, to the emailer. We're not going to just scrap your question. Uh, but one story I want to discuss, it's been a rough Christmas for Delta. Uh, just before the holiday, video started emerging of illegal immigrants apparently boarding flights at border area airports to be shipped all over the country. And uh, one of those airlines that appears to be facilitating the movement of these migrants is Delta. And so Congressman Matt Gates sent a letter to the CEO asking what exactly is going on and who's paying for it. Well, um, yesterday, yet another video uh, involving Delta started circulating. And this of a Delta employee kindly telling a transgender customer to shut up. This apparently happening on Friday at LaGuardia Airport in New York City. And this trans customer is actually an actor. His name is uh, Tommy Dorfman. And he recently, or he apparently played a, a character on the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. I haven't seen that show, but that's what my sources say. 
This guy is also apparently personal friends with Dylan Mulvaney, fellow, uh, fellow man who professionally dresses as a woman, of course. Dorfman says he was misgendered by these Delta employees who did not respond to that uh, misgendering claim in the way that Dorfman expected. The response to the video itself is also probably not what Dorfman expected since he thinks this video makes him look like the good guy. And what about when a Delta employee misgenders you so intentionally? While, she's talk, while he's talking, you're talking. You just misgendered me again. Okay. Multiple times. Gotcha. Both of you have. Sorry. It wasn't intentional, but if you yeah. want to take it personal, that's also... Well, she did do it intentionally twice. Okay, so you're talking to me too. You said she and then you said he. You're being condescending. And if you want to continue, Ooh. I have full authority escort you out the building right this moment. If you want to play that game with me. Would you like to continue three days before Christmas? I really don't mind. I'm good. I'll just put this on. The clip was cut there. I, I wonder if he said something to the effect of, I'm good. I'll just put this on social media. You know, I'm going to expose you guys. I, I'm guessing that's where he was going. And the reason I love this story, it demonstrates just how starved we all are for just the slightest pushback against this lunacy. I think it's hilarious how this clip has been kind of sensationalized. Uh, you know, Delta Delta worker owns trans activist or there's this article that I'm looking at. Delta employee puts whiny transgender actor in his place. I'm not even saying those things are wrong necessarily. I'm just saying the the exchange was actually pretty calm, pretty polite pushback. And it just goes to demonstrate contrary to a, a narrative about this constant hate and threats and hostility and danger. Well, the reverse is actually true for transgender people. We are all constantly walking on eggshells to protect the sensitivities of these people. And so now one guy saying, no, thank you. Well, that seems like this major cultural moment. Uh, good for him, though. I'm, I'm not trying to take it away from him. It actually does take a little bit of bravery, a little bit of courage to 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 engage in this sort of counterculture behavior, to, to He's supposed to represent like the evil oppressive forces. No, no, I guarantee there's probably going to be some sort of consequence at work, whether it's just a stern talking, uh, talking to, or whether he is in fact punished. Uh, when I say that, I don't think uh, Dorfman, the transgender person in this video got what he was expecting out of this video. It looks like he deleted the original post. I think it, Oh no, now. Okay. Now that's sourced on X. Maybe it wasn't in this story. But I did see another story that hosted his original post from TikTok, and and it now says that post is missing, where that post is, is you know it's not here anymore. Which I assume means he deleted it. If he did delete it, I assume that's out of some sort of embarrassment or not getting what he expected out of it. Now, will Delta punish this employee? That is the big question. Will Delta actually have the balls to stand by this guy, or? Will they cave and punish him for what, you know, is, is not bad behavior in any way? So far, there's no indication. A spokesperson for Delta speaking with Newsweek yesterday said, we're aware of the video and looking into the matter, including reaching out to our customer to understand more about what occurred. But for now, at least, it appears Delta has pissed off everyone. As uh, fellow tenant contributor Taylor Hansen notes, you either hate them for shipping illegal immigrants around the country, or you hate them for misgendering or maybe even both. And if Delta follows Bud Light, then maybe Dylan and Tommy here can be arm in arm themselves, united in their ability to destroy 
major American companies. Tim, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I know this is a stupid question to ask because presumably you remember uh, the tranny from GameStop, I think it was, screaming of it's ma'am. And Super it, of macho ma'am tranny savage. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I ask is because maybe it's just me. It seemed like in that clip, he was not getting upset. He was not getting aggressive. He was not doing anything. He was he just being the employee, oh, yeah, you, the, the worker. Uh, no, no, the, the tranny, he, oh. she, the transgender person. They were just, you know, you misgendered me. You didn't. So I don't think it was something they were generally upset about. I think it was a power play. Yeah. I think course. it was like, a, I'm going to, you know. You go to the Delta desk. Be, why did this person go to the desk? You go to the Delta desk because you have some kind of problem. Hey, I need to check this bag, but X, Y, and Z. Hey, my boarding pass says ABC, but now the screen says one, two, three, whatever. And so if you're trying to get them to do something that maybe the policy says they shouldn't, and the worker guy calls you a man, even innocently, well, yeah, now you've, now you can weaponize that to either get what you want in the moment as a matter of your flight or just to post something on social media to make yourself the victim and get the CEO of Delta to say something apologetic to you publicly. I'm sure, that's the dynamic here. But uh, but again, I don't know if you disagree, but I just listened to that when this guy isn't angry. This guy doesn't really care. I don't think. Oh, the transgender person. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. do I think that he was hurt? No, no, no. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a way to leverage. It's a way to, yeah, like you said, power play. Whatever he's trying to get out of that situation, no doubt. It is not a case of hurt feelings. And even if it is, sorry, don't care. Feelings get hurt sometimes. That's called being an adult. I don't care what gender you claim to be or not. We all get hurt feelings sometimes. Sometimes workers at companies are dicks. That's 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 the way the world works and you move on. Anyway, uh, I mentioned that um, we have uh, an email question tonight. I am going to pause that because we're already past the hour. Um, so Halo with Horns, uh, we will save that question to next week. And uh, if we get any more questions in the meantime, we will add those as well. I want to remind everyone that if you would like to send an email question to the show, the way to do that is through the contact page of my website. Head on over to mattchristensenmedia.com. Look for the uh, contact page in the navigation and please use the box that says MC Our Questions. That is where I take questions for discussion on this show. And thank you to Halo with Horns. We'll get to your question next week. Or if I have to postpone one more week, we will get to it. So thank you for your patience. Uh, but uh, before we get out of here, we want to catch up with any super chat there may be. Uh, Tim, do you have super yeah. chat ready to go? Yeah, got them loaded up. Before I do, though, if I could just do a bit of housekeeping, because obviously with the old call-in show, you basically read the questions that were sent in that week. Mm -hmm. It's not really how we've been doing it for the for this show. So I just want to point out to people, if you have something that you want to talk about, just email in the question. If I don't get to it the week that you email it, there's a chance we will circle back and we'll we'll come back to it. Yeah, a bit we later, will. So. Uh, we will try. Obviously, I'm still trying to get a gauge for how much to prepare for this show. Uh, I don't have exactly like uh, my Sunday show has a little bit different format, so I know kind of exactly how much content to prepare. This one, I'm still getting the hang of. So, some obviously, I'm going over. I need to prepare fewer things or prepare less and allow a little bit more time for email questions if we're going to do that. But, um, but yeah, so. For now, you know, we'll have to be patient with email questions, but it is the intent to get to those uh, in short order. 
But thank you for the clarification. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I just thought it might be something worth pe- uh, keeping in mind for people to send stuff in, even if they don't think that we're going to get to it straight away. Anyway, so firstly, over at Rumble, we've got a couple from Ginger Ninja. Firstly, he says, he or she, uh, Mackie should also appeal on violation of the 14th Amendment on selective prosecution because there are several identical instances going the other political direction, throw everything at the wall. And I think it was uh, Christina Wong you mentioned in that interview. Yeah, it was literally the exact same thing at the exact same time. Uh, People don't remember, just look up Christina Wong tells Trump supporters to vote on Super Wednesday. You'll find the tweet. And there's a video that goes along with it. I don't know a lot about what the Supreme Court has said on the 14th Amendment, equal protection as it applies to selective prosecution. I know that at least, well, given that it happens a lot, that is to say pointing at someone who was unprosecuted for the crime for which you are charged is not necessarily a defense uh, or always a constitutional matter. But I'd, I'd be curious to see what the court would say on on the, in, in this case, because this is a this has the combination of other people doing the exact same thing in in plain sight, public view and not being prosecuted in combination with what is a, a, a new legal theory or sort of a, a new application of of uh, of that reconstruction era law that the Justice Department hasn't brought before. So. I, I'll be watching this appeal. I think I think you're smart to raise that issue, obviously. It's not one I've thought about. And I don't know a lot about what the court has said about it. But this this appeal, especially with what he said about jurisdiction that I wasn't aware of, this appeal will be one to watch. I think his appeal hearings start on the 9th, coming up very soon. Uh, double check. You'll have to double check that. I'm not sure if it is January 9th or not. But it's very soon. We'll get uh, some movement in his appeal. And we'll see how this goes. Uh, so next one from Ginger Ninja. Every interview I've seen you do, I'm just more impressed. Such a good way of laying everything out and insightful questions, top notch. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate the uh, the kind words there. I'm trying to do the best with it that I can. So We love you. You're very special. Yeah, Slightly insulting. He hasn't come and asked the professional journalist for help, but whatever. <laughs> oh, 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 professional journalist here. Oh, ha, ha. Go on. To be did fair, you, these you days, that's probably... To be fair, these days, that's probably an insult more than a badge yeah, of honor. That's true. Whatever. I'm not sure you want to advertise that. Uh, yeah, that thank you for the kind true. words, Ginger Ninja. Um, interviews, uh, are, anyway. interviews are something I really wanted to do with this show. I want to achieve with this show. So the fact that that you appreciate them means a lot to me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep trying to find the guests that are that are involved in the stories I think are interesting and see what they have to say. I, it's a new sort of area of content for me or an area of content that I haven't uh spent a lot of time with previously so i look forward to developing it more and i know you have said previously although this might have been because you're in person back in 2016 i know you said that kind of freaked me out i found a bit uncomfortable again maybe that was the in-person aspect rather than the trying to talk to people and interview them sort of aspect but yeah uh yeah well it's the street thing it's not necessarily like meeting people in person to discuss. It's it's talking to random people on the street because you just don't know who they are and what they might do. Uh, fair enough. So I'll fair leave enough, the yeah. uh, the hostile protesters to others. I had enough with those old people on January 6th last year. That was as much as I could handle. So uh, and Anyway, we've got a couple of, uh, couple of YouTube yeah. ones as well uh, from Mint20. Remember, everyone, they're not stupid. They're evil when it comes to immigration. Do- I, I think could be both a little bit. I have to, I, at this point, I have to grant that point. I'm, I'm someone who's always believed, like, you don't, 
You shouldn't assume malice unless you can prove it. You should assume incompetence. You should assume stupidity. No, man. I mean, the stupidity, if they were stupid, you'd be trying some things, whether they work or not. Right now, we're not trying anything. And so I have to assume three years into this presidency, this is the intent until they lay yeah, out yeah. some idea otherwise. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, and also from Min 20, uh, CA, I assume that's California, yeah. attempted to convert Uber, DoorDash people to employees already. It was overturned by a public referendum in 2018. The unions here really want to unionize the delivery app workers, lots of Jews. That makes sense because California is such a big union state. Uh, that does make sense. So they haven't been successful in that regard. And I, that must be, I think that's got to be Pizza Hut's play in this case. That we know that uh, these Uber Eats, DoorDash people, they are uh, their own independent contractors with a different company. We can just pass those delivery costs over there without assuming $20 per hour for a task that is just not worth $20 per hour. But the thing about uh, the delivery driver, too, I mean, that's a tip job. You, if you're a good delivery driver, you're making tips directly from the consumer in addition to whatever wages you may be making from uh, from the restaurant at that point. But 20 bucks an hour plus tips from the consumer, I mean, that's those are massive wages for what is skill-wise sort of an entry-level kind of high school, high school level job. I'm not taking shots at anybody who's a delivery driver. You got to do what you got to do. But the point is, if you want to ascend beyond delivery driver, it's on you to develop skills that bring more value to the market and the employer than the simple, the simplest possible task. And if you think that the employer has all the power in that relationship, oh yeah, easy to say when you're fighting a massive corporation like Pizza Hut that has all the power. Trust me. If you provide value to the company that is not replaceable, if you go to the bargaining table and say, pay us more or we're out, and I, when I say we, I include the option to bargain collectively. If you want to join a union voluntarily in a private sector context, sure, that is an area of leverage that you have. But when you make your value not replaceable, you will earn your value because the company is not going to want to assume the role of trying to replace... Delivery drivers happen to be pretty replaceable. They're getting replaced in a different arrangement in this case. Skill-wise, it's pretty replaceable. If you don't want to be replaceable in that way, you develop yourself, you develop your skills so that you're not. And that's a you thing to do. That's not Pizza Hut's responsibility. Anyway, just my thoughts. Sorry, just, sorry, just quickly before we shut down the show. Mm -hmm. We don't really have tip culture here in Australia, so can you just explain it for the people that uh, non-Americans. Is it just the idea that you have a low pay rate and then the tips make up the rest? Uh, don't, I, this is like a 20 minute discussions. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair it's, enough. it's all confusing now because traditionally it's like if someone provides us like a, a service to you, like they, they're your server at a restaurant, they're tending to you for an hour. That's like a tip situation, a driver that's kind of an added service on top of the pizza. You know, the driver is going out of their way to bring the food to you. It's a similar service thing. That's usually a tip situation. Now it's like, you know, the guy who makes the sandwich at Subway wants a tip or in, in some cases, like the guy who handed you a muffin at a coffee shop wants a tip. So it's all very confusing. And uh, frankly, I feel like I, I'm in, I'm in a situation where I have to be the dick who doesn't tip in a lot of situations, but not at restaurants or not in a delivery situation. Talking about like, I'm not tipping you for handing me a bottle of water type stuff. Sorry. Okay. I'm Fair hitting enough. the zero on the button. That's not a tip thing. Yeah, I guess yeah. I'll have to think more about what the rules are, but they're getting very confusing in this country. Yeah. Again, it's just not something that we culturally do here. So Yeah. 
Well, at least it's uh, at least it's easy to understand then. But uh, all right, we will call it there. Uh, appreciate everybody who uh, tuned in this evening. I know it's uh, we got a lot going on with the uh, with the holidays, uh, with Christmas and the upcoming New Year. But uh, appreciate your time nonetheless. Uh, if you missed any part of the show or would like more to listen to, maybe you need more for whatever holiday travels you may have, there is more content on my website, of course, mattchristiansenmedia.com. If you're new to the Tenant Media channel, a like and a subscription are much appreciated as well. We'll be back each and every Wednesday night at 9 Eastern. This has been the Matt Christensen Hour on Tenant Media. Have a great night and a happy new year. <laughs>